Hey everybody. Today we are talking about confidence, fear thresholds, and manifestation. And we're talking with an epic coach and dear friend, Kate DeMello. Kate is a master life coach and founder of That Confidence Chick on Instagram. Her work centers around empowering high-achieving corporate women to stop simply existing and instead start thriving, radiating authenticity, and embracing a life of unapologetic confidence. Her signature process, the Have Your Own Back Method, combines teaching with the power of coaching, tailored specifically for corporate women to create a synergy between the mind, body, and soul that acts as a catalyst for healing, growth, and fulfillment. Kate and I met years ago in grad school as we became counselors, and today we go deep and cover a ton of ground. Thanks for being with us. Let's get into it. So I've literally been sitting on this group program. I've been pushing out when I'm going to quote unquote launch it for fear that no one's going to sign up for fear. I'm going to look like an idiot, all this stuff. I tell myself that time is an issue and that I don't have enough of it. And I think I'm noticing just how big my fear of failure and my fear of humiliation is. Yeah. Do you feel like those are the biggest barriers in your way to diving headfirst and launching the program? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I'm noticing it's like these old stories that no longer apply and stuff where it's really just, it's my own medicine. It's my own medicine of having my own back and getting into the practice of having my own back and putting myself out there and starting to take more of these risks and just letting people know. And I think what I let myself fall into the trap of is no one's going to see this. No one's going to sign up. No one's going to want to do it, anything like that. And it's, I don't know. What it sounds like I'm hearing though, is that's only part of it. And that could be a projection because what I noticed within myself is that when I'm just like putting myself out there more, for one, there's a part of it, which is with more activity just comes more of this reality that I'm going to be sharing stuff that is imperfect. Like the more rapidly I'm going out and sharing stuff, the less time I have to polish it up. And so that's part of the reality is like one, me just like accepting the imperfectness and just like rolling with it. But then what comes up for me when I'm sharing that stuff or when I'm sharing podcasts or when I'm like working on the book for me, it's like these two different poles (laughs) that like... They're almost like contradictory fears. One is no one's going to see this. I'm not going to get any likes on this shit. No one's going to care. And I'm going to feel embarrassed about that. (laughs) Or the flip side of it, which is a bunch of people are going to see this. Somebody's going to point out that I did something wrong or that this is like an unfair summary. It's like, I can't have it both ways. No one's going to see it and no one's going to care. Or like people are going to see it and they're going to care enough to like, comment about it and i consider both of those as more likely than like a decent amount of people see it and like it yeah the story that floats around in my head that's literally not even real is my sisters that are gonna laugh about me behind my back (sighs) yeah the other thing is who does she think she is 
who do you think you are? You really think you're going to be that big? I feel like both of those, they're like archetypes of the creative process. Like whether it's Stephen Pressfield and the art of war or Rick Rubin talking about the creative process, like anybody that talks about the creative process, there's always both of those like manifestations of resistance. Like one is like, what's the cool table going to say? The people whose judgments I care about, what are they going to say? Yes. The other one is like, how dare I think that anything I'm sharing, especially the personal stuff about my journey is worth other people's precious attention and how dare Mm -hmm. I put effort into sharing my story as opposed to just being more of service, like helping other people share more of their stories. It's like both of those of who do you really think you are and you better watch the fuck out for what the cool table is going to say. Yes. My God, that cool table. They've got a hold on me right now. But I will say I'm inching closer and closer to not giving a fuck because I'm so ready to just be living a life that like that feels like it's of my creation. And I think that is such a driving force. Like I'm starting to feel like I'm noticing how every move I've made has got me closer and closer to freedom, which I'm starting to understand freedom is truly within and not without. However, put that on the shelf for a minute. We'll bracket that. We'll bracket that. Yeah. yeah. But I'm starting to recognize how I've just jumped into bigger boxes. Okay, wait. Break that one down for me. So I've always been the free spirit. My family hates when I say the black sheep, but I have been the black sheep of the family. You get this. You know this. I've just noticed how I've had this false sense of doing my own thing. It's almost like you get to be the representative free spirit of the family, but you only get to do it within these parameters that we set for you. And anything outside of that, no. And I just slapped my hand for effect, just a heads up. So... Moral of the story is I've just, I lived abroad in Korea and everybody's, oh my God, that's wild. I'm like, and I, and yes, it is. And it's amazing. And it was one of, it's one of the most liberating things I've ever done. And the parameters that I had to do it under were that it was safe. I had housing. I was getting paid. I was staying in one location. My parents knew where I was. Like, And even at the end, I really wanted to stay for another year. And one of my sisters, she probably will deny it, but she was like, you had your year. You're coming home. And it's how. Okay, I got my year. So it was like boxes. So then come back home. And then the reason that I left and went to Korea was, first of all, I really wanted to travel, but I was working with a therapist and I was telling her, I'd really like to do what you're doing. Like, I'd really like to get into counseling. I'd really like to... And I was having a really hard time getting out of my way. I was feeling so stuck. Nothing was really bringing me joy. Honestly, you could probably say I was depressed at that point. And... um, And You were working full-time at that point. Yes. That dead-end job in business. I was business undergrad, like living in New York City, partying my life away and like numbing the fuck out. And she said to me, she was like, it's a lot of work to get here. I don't think you're going to do that. And I was like, see ya. I'm going to Korea. (laughs) I'm out. 
Now I'm a middle school counselor. (laughs) (laughs) But then that's the other thing is I really wanted my own. I have always wanted my own business. Always. I've always, whether it's a partial cafe with give and take bookstore and secondhand shop that has tags where people write down their favorite memory in the item, whether it's that or (laughs) I know it's brilliant. I know. Or whether it was doing LPC on my own and taking that trajectory and school counseling was the safe route to get to where I wanted to go. It had the parameters, longevity, guaranteed job, guaranteed, like insurance, all of that stuff. And so it fit the parameters of what was safe for the people surrounding me. It shrunk my safety zone. My safety zone is bigger, but I'm so used to putting a stop on that. So it's like this cycle of feeling pulled towards different things. You might call them adventures or experiences or things that you feel Mm -hmm. pulled towards, but Mm -hmm. then yet settling for a smaller, safer version of them, according to what like your inner circle would look at and be like, Ooh, that's a little risky, but it's right out right near the edges. It's like just beyond our edges. And so like, we can still accept that and tolerate it. Yes. I was talking to some friends about this concept called fear threshold. And so what happens is when you're a child, the way that you, one of the ways that you can experience trauma, and this would be not the acute trauma, but anyway, is this fear threshold. And if the child's fear threshold is greater than the parents, they'll push it down. will tamper it so that they don't have to feel the fear. They don't have to feel the anxiety over what their child is doing, but they tamper it. So that the parent with their stress, anxiety, and like, eagerness to control will bring down the child and keep them from exploring and adventuring past their tolerance so that the parent doesn't have to feel discomfort. Yes. And then then over time, the child starts to mirror and match that because it just learns like, okay, got it. This is how I fit in here in this family relationship. Yes. Don't go on the monkey bars. That's too dangerous. Don't touch the stove. That's going to hurt. Don't do this. Don't learn on your own. So it's like there's this fear threshold con- concept. So there's enough, There's the, also the other side. When the child's fear threshold doesn't meet the parents and the parents is bigger and they let the kid do more and the kid develops anxieties over being pushed too far without having the confidence or the, or the stamina or the sense of safety. Yeah, this is one of the threads that I hold and like weave into the greater story of our societal culture in my book. And so one of the one of the things that we just constantly get wrong is the actual process for how skills are developed, in particular, skills for relating with the world. Meaning, like, we, we could think of, like, my inner world, like, emotional regulation skills, just my ability to, like, feel and process what we might call stress or any emotion that I feel in a way that then allows me to adapt and continue to show up in helpful ways in my life. Like, just mm-hmm. my ability to feel stuff and continue living. Mm-hmm. My ability to do that without accumulating trauma, like, that's those are my emotional regulation skills. 
if I don't have any of those emotional regulation skills, like everything's going to overwhelm me. I'm going to go straight into like stress response, like fight, flight, fawn, freeze. So Mm -hmm. what we get wrong is we do this weird thing with emotional skills. And I would argue with a lot of cognitive skills too, like critical thinking. It's not just the like fluffy woo woo emotion, what we call like soft skill stuff. It's also stuff like real critical reasoning. And what we do is we take the five-year-old and we give him the keys to the car and we say, now go driving. And we're like, he's going to have to drive at some point. So might as well send him on off. But we don't do that. We don't do that with cars because we get, oh, something bad could happen. Sure, he might learn how to drive that car at five years old if you just send him out on the road. Or he might crash and it's really going to fuck him up. And we get wrong that that doesn't happen with our emotional mm-hmm. world. Like when you when you try to push a kid's fear threshold too far, too fast, too soon, then they Tom. don't actually develop the skills. Instead, you've overextended them. It's like you were trying to get them to learn how to squat. And instead, you put way too much weight on it first. And now they've torn mm-hmm. a bunch of muscles. And so now they need to repair and recover before they can build those muscles again. And we're constantly doing that to kids, whether it's through the trauma of impact, which is I'm my fear threshold is bigger than yours as a parent. So I'm going to stretch you too far, too fast, too soon, Mm -hmm. or the trauma of suppression, which is Mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to support you and meet you up where you need. And so you're going to have to betray yourself and suppress aspects of yourself. And that suppression is going to cause this trauma either Mm -hmm. way. I'm not developing the skills that I need to know how to use my emotions as information about who I am and what I want and navigate through the world in adaptive ways. And like Mm -hmm. that whole thing, like that's the whole thing that we get wrong about child development and the whole like gap that we don't build into our systems is like, how do we actually help kids and attune to them and help them build skills by relating with them? Because those skills are built in relationship and we learn how to relate with ourselves based on those relationships. And so like that fear threshold example of like parent and child, like the things happening in that dynamic, that's the whole fuckery of it all. It is. My mind has to go to COVID right now too, because I'm now dealing with kids that are three years out. And they were in their, okay, so there are some schools of thought that say that by the age of seven, your worldview solidifies. And so these kids during that last year of getting their worldview solidified were in the homes with their families. So if their parents aren't doing the work and if they're not aware of their own interactions with their children, whether it's the fear threshold, not meeting each other and not being the same, whether it's the parental dynamics, whether it's the parent-child dynamic. These children are not out in the real world having experiences and shifting viewpoints and receiving different interpretations and receiving different experiences and evolving themselves. They're stuck in Mm. this one worldview of how the parent interacts with me, how my parents interact with each other, what I'm allowed to do, what messages I'm telling myself around this. That's so, I hadn't even thought about that. Of all that time those kids spent at home, they're having experiences. 
like no, no matter what, like they're having all sorts of thoughts and emotions. They're learning something. Everybody's mm-hmm. time at home, whether they were learning virtually through a computer or their parents were homeschooling them or they brought in a teacher or they just watched movies or they ran around outside all day, whatever they were doing, they were learning something. But a really good point you're making is it used to be bef- when it wasn't COVID, they were going to school at least five days a week. And they're interacting with all these people. Which also isn't a perfect system. Which also isn't a perfect system. But at least it's like these diverse viewpoints. Where it it at least forces you to develop this flexibility and like curiosity around what is, what meaning do I make of this experience? What is, what's right here? What does this mean? And instead of acquiring this variety of stuff, it's like the variety of things that they're learning from was massively reduced because they're spending so much time just around the same people, their parents, and not mm-hmm. really interacting with a bunch of people. Yeah. And it also widened their the potential for other adult relationships to form because they're exposed automatically to adults. And it's not the same on computer, especially at that age, let's be honest. Mm. But it also widens their ability to experience different adults, whether it's a school counselor, whether it's a teacher, whether it's someone that just gets their learning style and gives them a different way to think. A child could be working on something that has absolutely zero to do with home, but the teacher presents it in such a way that it shifts the way that they look at home. Yeah. And and that's not the case for every child. And let's be honest, the system as it pertains across the U.S., it is not the same system from district to district. It is not the same from state to state. It is not, everybody uses the term broken. I just say it's not fair. It is. And when we look at people's homeschooling experience, it's totally possible to design experiences for your child that you're homeschooling where they get a bunch of like diverse perspectives and where they're learning from multiple other adults. The problem though is during COVID, very few parents had the expertise to be able to design experiences like that. Many of them were also overwhelmed with stress because they were going through a crisis. Mm-hmm. They were busy with now also working from home and and it was very sudden, let alone the very small amount of people that actually could have afforded the resources to do something like hiring a teacher to bring in to deliver that sort of stuff. So it's not that being at home is necessarily the problem, but what's interesting is just, it's a massive contrast. The like average sort of experience that most kids had at home during the COVID crisis, which was like sudden and thrusted upon parents and kids compared with the possibilities of the average experience that happened at school, where it was just much Mm -hmm. more possible for you to have all these different interactions yeah, and even really think about the skills that are developed during that time. And students, let's say, first, second, and third graders who are still in that stage of understanding their peers and the teachers and reading body cues and learning body language and having over a year of their life be masked. So you now have to read into someone's body language and into someone like with part of that being covered up and part of that not even existing. And so you're learning how to navigate this world in such a bizarre way that doesn't reflect 
typical reality. Anyway, all of that to say is, just bringing it full circle and back to the original point, is I think what we were talking about is just how those relationships can have such an impact on the kids when that's like the only relationship or the only place that they can create stories about themselves. And you were talking about how that also just relates to throughout your life. You've been reflecting on like how you have consistently put yourself like in this box and then just another box and then another box. Yeah. Yep. And so now I'm like, all right, I feel like all of the walls are about to come down and that's scary. Oh, what is that like? If I'm really going to fully invest in myself, the thought to just drop everything by a fucking van and cruise the country with my dog. And that feels so good. Anyway, neither here nor there. But the moral of the story is if I really, truly pursue this and I really, truly see this vision of where I can go and the things that I want to build and put out there, it's never been done before in my family. So what is that vision? Do you feel like it's at a point where you are ready to share it? Do you want to talk about it? My my vision for like where I want to go and what I want to do? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have a name yet, but right now I'm calling myself that confidence chick. <laughs> the working title. But that's what I want to be, the one-stop shop for like building your fucking confidence. And I've already started. So this group program is kind of lays out the foundation for how I work with people. So basically it starts with redefining and reorienting yourself to what confidence is. And I don't teach it as an attribute. I don't teach it as a characteristic. I don't even teach it as something that you get from doing the thing. I actually fucking hate that line of thought. Mm. I teach it as a choice and a way of being. and. I ask them to, like whoever it is that I'm working with, to really reflect on what does confidence look like to you? If you were to envision confidence, what would you envision? Because for me, it used to be blonde influencer, putting shit out into the world, liked by everyone. Everything comes easy to you. That's not fucking confidence. That's just how I internalize what the world views as confidence. So if you start, I can't, connect with that as a human being, as a brunette, as not perfect. I can't connect with that. Right. Okay. So is the only way for me to be confident to be a blonde influencer sharing stuff? Yes. So right off the bat, I'm at a deficit because that's what I envision confidence to look like. So it's like scratching that, going straight to the beginning and redefining it for yourself on a level that you can connect with. What do I look like when I'm confident. And so for me personally, and this is where this comes from is for me, being confident is having your own back. It's the self-belief piece. So it's going into any situation, regardless of outcome, regardless of outcome, and knowing that I'm not going to abandon myself just because somebody thinks I look stupid. I'm not going to agree with them. I've got my own back. I'm doing what's right for me. And so that's the basis of it is coming up with your link to confidence and your understanding of it and how it shows up in you. And then 
from there, it's awareness. So you do like an inventory on yourself and you create awareness around what are the situations and environments that remove your confidence, where you abandon confidence, where you choose the less confident path. Then it goes into authenticity. What are your strengths? What makes you? And where do you, how do you start to have your own back surrounding that? What are the imperfections that you get to now make your own personal brand and walk around the world saying, I'm a representation of the people who don't have rock hard abs, but still think they look like a babe. You know what I mean? What, whatever your own thing is. So then from there, it's you, you're aware of things. You have your authenticity. Now it's your expression. How are you putting that out into the world? And where are the places that you're not fully expressed? You're not expressing authentically. And where are those things? And then from there, that's the connection. So now you're out into the world. You're expressing yourself. What are those connections looking like? And how do you authentically show up in them? And then that leads to fulfillment because you've got that whole piece. And so what we end up doing is a values assessment. And so they leave me with their top five values that they get to check. Am I living these values? Because if I am, I know that I'm believing in myself. I know I'm doing X, Y, Z. I know that I'm living a life that I get to be confident. And so that's the whole trajectory. Wow. You have your own back. I love that framing of having your own back because the, just the Latin. I didn't do something useful like most people, like where they like took Spanish or French. Like I had to be the like black sheep doing things my own way. I I took Latin in high school (laughs) and in college. And so I just love breaking down words. I don't know if it's actually interesting to anybody else, Mm -hmm. but it's always Mm -hmm. interesting to me. And like Mm -hmm. confidence being with trust. Yeah. It was like that. It was world defining for me or world redefining. It was world redefining for me when I realized that. Not when I saw it, but like when like I started to shift the way I saw confidence as that, because it's, it then gives you this insight of what the fuck you're seeing when you look at somebody and you say, they seem confident. What you're saying Mm -hmm. is they seem like they're powerfully expressing themselves. And for someone to do that, they must know something. They must be like, they must have really done some like important stuff or they must really be important. Like the way that our nervous system is set up as tribal beings, like for someone to show up in that way, it's like our nervous system is, yo, pay attention to that. Like Mm. that must be a leader, if not of your tribe, of somebody's tribe. There's something to pay attention to here. Like we're, we're gravitated towards it in sometimes to our detriment. Like even if somebody is a complete narcissist manipulator, Yes. just seems to be confident. We're still drawn to it and like curious about it and like, oh, what's going on there? And if somebody stands up and they seem really nice and you've seen their resume and they've done a whole bunch of very impressive things, but they start Mm -hmm. giving a talk and you're sitting in the audience and they're being really like quiet and uh, like stumbling over their like words, no matter what, no matter how hard you're trying, it is way harder to pay attention to that person. And it gets to a point where you're like, yo, I want out of this. (laughs) It's also harder to trust them. Yeah, because you can tell they're not trusting themselves. They're they're being hesitant. So if they're being hesitant about what they're saying, why should I be leaning into buying into more of what they're saying? 
Yeah. Yeah. And that is, as you're well aware, but that's a gross overgeneralization, but because distort, delete, and whatever the other thing is that our brains do, we overgeneralize information that comes in. So we see someone who appears to be that way, and we put them in the category of untrustworthy or whatever. And I think it's, something just dropped in for me, but you were saying something earlier about the skills that we aren't actually building in kids. And it's like, there's that aspect and there's also, and there's also the woo-wooing. And I actually hate that word because apparently I think it actually might not be, I think it might be, it have been created to diminish Asian culture. Well, I, I may it. try and use a different one, but that the true skills that have been spiritualized and character cart- cartoonized with ca- made into caricature like whatever i'll figure out how to say that another time but yeah, yeah. things like trusting your intuition and how that has gone to the wayside and it, this is all i don't know how to make it come full circle but i was just thinking about how i'm tracking um Yes. Okay, good. But how this whole trust thing, and you know how I feel about trust. I don't think there's any, I don't believe that you can actually trust other people. I think it's only trust in yourself. I don't believe Which, we can We can go down that rabbit hole in a minute. <laughs> Put that one on the shelf too. Yeah, we'll you, you know how I feel about that. But it's almost, and even with that fear threshold concept, more often than not, because it's not everyone, but more often than not, from a very young age, we are taught to not trust our instincts. Yeah. We are taught to not trust what's going on internally. Yeah. Anyway, I think I went on a tangent there, but... No, it's an important tangent because I think it, it actually connects that earlier part of the conversation to what we're talking about now which is there is a reason why so many people go through their 20s or and into their 30s and get to this point where they have a midlife crisis because they start to realize how hollow their life feels to them, despite mm-hmm. the fact that they feel like they played by the rules. I've pursued some sort of like financial success. I've tried to build this life. I've tried to be a decently good yeah. person according to how people have told me to be. And I'm not fucking happy. And I'm not sure what radical thing I need to do. And the thing that a lot of people just don't get because they aren't told is you're not broken because you feel that way. Mm. It's not that you have made a bunch of mistakes along the way. And out of nowhere, you have developed into this person that doesn't have this confidence who doesn't really know what lights them up or makes them come alive anymore. It's not that you've taken too many left turns and you just got lost and stumbled along. Actually, the community failed you. And the community failed most of us because we have these systems that intentionally teach children. And I've seen it. I've worked with thousands of kindergartners and dozens of schools where I have seen it firsthand. Where in a kindergarten classroom, you come on in and immediately they start teaching you Put your hand down. You don't really need to go to the bathroom. Oh, that made you upset. Be quiet about it. We're reading a story right now. Anything that you're feeling on the inside, you're supposed to suppress in favor of doing what the people with the most power in the room want you to do. Be quiet. 
sit still, perform and produce, because that's what the person with the most power in the room wants you to do. And we learn not to make that person upset. And what ends up happening is we actually internalize that dynamic. It's not that we like stumble into developing that because we're silly, crazy, broken people. It's that we actually have systems that are all fucked up. And so they're not giving us the support that we need to be able to develop increasing and deepening layers of confidence. We're so out of touch with ourselves because we were instructed from a very early age not to have our back in favor of doing what the powerful person in the room wants us to. A hundred percent. And so we learn so early on to not trust ourselves. And that chips away. That is the very crux, the very beginning of chipping away at your confidence with trust. So you do all things with trust that you will have your own back, that you will still be whole, that you will come out of this alive. And that gets chipped away at every single time someone tells you, don't listen to you, listen to me. Don't do what you're doing, do what I tell you. And it's generational too. These systems have been in place for hundreds of years, decades at least. And in addition to that, like the way that my parents were parented and their parents were parented and their parents were parented, it all trickles down. And you get this kind of, I don't know, soup. (laughs) It becomes the ocean that we swim in. It is what the toxic culture then is, which is just, we're all just swimming in this stuff. And it's overwhelming to look at because it's not simple. There's no one person or like Illuminati room full of people pulling all the puppet strings, making things hard and difficult and broken. It's actually like this like entire vastness that we're all just navigating through that over time has collected all these like broken shards that end up fucking up all kinds of stuff. And it becomes self-reinforcing because our own psyches and the stories that we share with each other to reinforce those psyches, those things are the structure that hold that like ocean of culture. And so those beliefs, Mm -hmm. those values, those norms, those practices, those myths, those beliefs, they get reinforced by the structure. And what is the structure? The like patterns of how people live, of how they treat each other, of what they believe is important, what they say is important, the things that they do. So like we're communicating that and reinforcing it all the time. And we end up, what the hell do we do about any of this? How am I supposed to change any of this? And the Mm -hmm. crazy thing is it becomes so self-reinforcing because then you were raised in that culture and through those structures. And so, of course, why would you ever step up to become somebody that then challenges that thing that you exist within? Yeah. Meanwhile, the only people that ever do radically transform the world are these people that we see have this exact confidence. Like you want to talk about Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, anybody that is radically changing the entire structure of our society. All of them are people that did things. Other people were looking at them and saying, that's crazy. 
no one's ever going to buy that. What are you doing? You shouldn't do Mm. that. No, that's not the way things are done. And like over and over again, we see all of these examples showing us that, oh, actually our job through this life, if we want to live a big, full, whole life is to not listen to those voices if they do not resonate deeply as right within us. Yeah. I was, yeah. Yeah, that's huge. If they don't resonate with us. And if that's the conundrum. And another thing that was coming through to me is like the whole, what's it called? It doesn't even matter. But just searching for things to reconfirm your perspective. And we have those Steve Jobs examples. And we also have just so many more other, like with social media and all that stuff, the access, it's like, we've got to find a way to start tallying up the positives to combat the way that we're wired to tally up the negatives for survival. Yeah. Well, that's also part of the self-reinforcing mechanism, which is, and I was just writing about this morning, so it's really fresh on my mind, but Anxiety has skyrocketed since the early 2000s, but it was also climbing through the 80s and 90s. And so we often blame social media, but it's not quite social media. It's really as soon as we started having such vast access to information, which really started with television and radio. In particular, television became this like, incredibly engaging thing. And as soon as the OJ Simpson thing hit, suddenly we had 24 hour news, which was like starting up from like the decade leading up to OJ, but didn't have a whole lot of viewers. But by that time, so many people had televisions in their household that it was well above 80%. And so now all of a sudden there's 24 hour access Everyone's super engaged, trying to watch all the details to OJ, this like fallen hero, following the court case. And now they've built a habit. We've built a collective habit at that moment. That Mm -hmm. was a major turning point for us. And leading up to that, we had all this crazy shit happening that started to change how news was being told that turned into the sparks that filled that moment. We had Reagan and Iran-Contra. We had before that, Mm. we had Nixon and Watergate. We had all these different scandals and these things that like we needed all these details about that were challenging our worldview that was like filling through the 80s. We had the war on drugs and crack that just came through, heroin that came through and skyrocketed. And now it's like all over the TV. And oh my gosh, everyone's watching. Things are getting crazy. And crime rates actually started to go up. So it was like warranted for people to be nervous. But then what happened was we didn't stop watching. We just kept watching. We kept Mm. feeling like we were doing something productive by seeking out more information where there was no more off switch. And then 9-11 happened. And it's another just deepening of that same habit. Oh, what's happening today? And so now like news is just on all the time. And people start to realize, oh, media actually isn't competing just for primetime hours. We can compete to get people's attention at any time. And what started Mm -hmm. to happen was we had television and then we had the internet and then we have smartphones. So now suddenly every single second 
of anybody's day, there is accessibility to media that people can compete over. And what they're competing over is not to have a quality impact on the consumer. What they're competing over is to get people's eyeballs. They're trying to get our attention. And so they're not thinking, oh, how can we deliver the most quality content that will improve the quality of this person's life? What they're thinking is, what is going to shock, sensationalize, and horrify so that people won't want to look away, so that they'll click on the next thing? So we just have these little tweaks that start to happen. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's just, let's talk to each other in slightly more combative ways. Oh, let what bleeds leads. Let's just, let, let, we'll tell that story about mm -hmm. the helpful and good mm -hmm. things happening, but we'll just make sure that the headline is about that horrible thing happening. So then we start to see violent crime rates have actually been going down since the 90s, but anxiety and fear about violence have been skyrocketing because mm -hmm. we have access to it, because we've fallen into this trap where we got stressed, we got anxious, we weren't feeling safe. And we thought if we could just chase down more information, if we could chase down more answers, it could explain it. And then we could feel safe again. And we just never do. And what ends up happening is then we have this whole worldview that now we want reinforced. So we keep going back to the media to reinforce this worldview that we have to try to erase this sense of stress and anxiety. And it's become this whole habit that has actually eroded our sense of safety. This, this pattern that's actually wired within us, that is wired within us so that we can connect with other humans, so that we can create mm -hmm. community where we can actually attune and help each other. Oh, if you're all fired up because you were just running from a tiger, it's a good thing for me to see that on you and for me to get horrified and activated quickly so I can help you and so we can help the whole tribe. So it's a good mm -hmm. thing that I get ramped up when I see you ramped up. It's not such a good thing when suddenly we're just showing everybody these images and this media of everybody being ramped up all the time. Mm -hmm. And what does that do? It pulls mm -hmm. us even further out of ourselves because as long as we're chasing down that information and just consuming content, what we're not doing is actually connecting with our body, the like filtering and processing machine for all of mm -hmm. that information and like checking in seeing what we're experiencing, processing the actual energy of it. And so what ends up happening, we become even more dependent on the idea that we need to be chasing more of this information, that we need even yeah. more validation of our worldview because we need that stuff to feel solid. And so our willingness to challenge our beliefs, our capacity for curiosity all gets dwindled and we become polarized. And it is a product of our relationship with the systems around us. And nobody fucking tells us that shit. So we're like walking around, yo, why the fuck are we all so anxious? And no one is being real with themselves. And it's because we are in this crazy ass system that we have accidentally mishmashed together that is fucking us all up. Yeah. It's so funny too, because so I sent out my weekly email this week and exactly what you're saying, I wrote in there. It's basically, and I was looking it up when we first started this conversation. So I was like, I swear to God, this is going to come up. But I, I wrote how you interpret what you experience informs how you tell yourself to feel. Mm. 
And so everything that we're saying is not only are we watching all of these experiences and put it, immersing ourselves in the news and immersing ourselves, but we are letting the experiences, the things that we see and the things that we experience tell us how to feel rather than us being in control of how we feel. And so then we, so then we move to the, through the world telling ourselves that external situations external experiences, external interactions with others. That makes me feel. Not I tell myself how to feel around this. Not I'm gonna I'm gonna look at that and see how I want to feel about that. And so then we get so hopped up on the adrenaline and the things that are going on and we let the cortisol levels rise and we let ourselves say, that looks anxiety inducing. I feel anxious. That looks scary. I feel scared. Rather than, oh, that looks scary. What's the reality of my situation? And I want to there, there, there might be, like, there might be some things that, like, activate more things within us than others. Like, they're, like somebody showing, like, a fluffy bunny, showing me a picture of that, and then showing me, like, a tiger. Maybe, oh, because of everything I've learned Maybe the tiger image is like more likely to make me feel somewhat activated, but still there is so much space for the story that I tell when I'm experiencing something Mm -hmm. that then impacts the overall emotional experience that I have as I'm receiving it. Like it's not that you're saying like some things that everything is equal no matter what you're seeing, but no matter how activating or no matter what stories it might be connected to within our body, we always have at least some level of choice where really it's about our interpretation of what we're experiencing, not just that anybody's making us feel any certain way. So anxiety and excitement, physically, they're the exact same sensationally in your body. They show up the exact same way. You feel, you experience them. The only difference is what you tell yourself you're feeling. So if we were to apply that to other things, and and I explain courage and cowardice this way. Cowardice is fear plus doubt. Courage is fear plus trust. So you only know when you're in one with what you tell yourself. Because trust and doubt are thought-based emotions. When, you know, when you really cut it down. So it's, so anyway, yeah, it's, it is the stories that we tell ourselves and we are the only living animals that get to tell ourselves a story. Or at We're least the as only intricate being. a story as we get. No, no other animal gets close to the powers we have with creating the story about what we're experiencing, but they all have some story. It's just there. It's, it's the difference between they have a one page picture book. And we can create an entire chapter book about the same experience. And I think like the stories get embedded in us and wired into our DNA. Literally, they change our DNA. And that's trauma. And in addition, that's chronic stress and chronic anxiety because you have all of these chemicals that are being released. If we get scientific about it, we have all of these chemicals that are being released that alters the internal happenings of your body. But anyway, but yes, okay, sure. Animals have like goldfish. Stories. Yeah, come on. Let's give them their <laughs> stories. Let's let the goldfish have their stories. But here's the thing 
They don't have the capacity to make something that it isn't and to live life that way. Like I could sit here and tell myself, Matt was sitting with his head to the side the entire time. He fucking hates me. He hates me. I know he does. You know what I mean? My favorite example, I don't remember what, I don't remember who I heard it from, but it was like when I was like 20, 21, when I was first really learning about mindfulness, I was at Mm -hmm. this conference and this axe trainer was talking about, look, if I leave my house and I accidentally lock my dog out of the house in the rain and it's pouring down rain all day and then I get home, what the dog sees is, oh, look, I love you. You're home. It's so good to see you and greets me. But if I leave my significant other out in the rain all day and I have the only keys, what happens is there's a whole story that he is so irresponsible. He's so disrespectful. He doesn't appreciate me. I cannot believe how he did this. And not only is she able to then get irritated, but there are all these like infinite deepening layers of irritation and frustration that she can layer on Mm -hmm. that any of us can layer on because of how we utilize language. And we recycle our emotions rather than feeling them through and releasing them. And so with the stories that we create in our head, we stay stuck in these emotions and we don't let them actually leave us, which then gets stuck in our body. And so it's, this whole cycle of even like Christine Hassler, all those, all the greats, and you know this, but when you talk about releasing an emotion, releasing it all the way through, you can have zero, you have to have zero judgment around having an emotion in order for it to release because the judgment will stop it. And I'm telling you, I've started explaining emotions to people, especially students and things like that this way. When you think of a baby, That is a pure expression of emotion. And it comes with three things. It comes with sound, sensation, and movement. And as you grow up and you experience the sound, you're told to be quiet. When you sing, you experience the movement, you're told, don't do that. And when you experience the sensation, you're told you shouldn't feel that way. And so you learn, don't have big movements. Don't get too angry. Don't get too X, Y, Z. So don't move the energy. You're told, don't make a noise. Stop crying. Why are you crying? You know what I mean? And then the sensation, you shouldn't be feeling the way that you're feeling. And so we internalize all of that stuff. And the reality of the situation is without those three things, the emotion gets stuck in your body. That's why it stresses in the shoulders. Fear is in like the gut and lower back. And actually it's like the whole gut belt. And people who live with anxiety and things, they have stomach issues. And then it it becomes the patterns that we end up living in our life because we have all this stuff stored inside of us that we have now processed and just labeled as pain. Okay, we're not actually going to feel this thing all the way so that it can release and just turn into some embodied insight within us. Instead, it's going to be this locked away, undefined, ambiguous pain. And so the only signal that we can send to our psyche is don't go nor don't go near this shit. <laughs> don't go near this at all. So help me avoid anything that triggers this thing. So what we yeah. end up doing is over time, just more and more emotions 
that we label as problems to be avoided rather than yeah. just phenomena to be experienced. Yeah. And it's like so, we have all these weird patterns that we develop and we're like, oh my gosh, I do this thing. And it's if you really get into why you do that thing, if it and it's a thing that you're like, yeah, I don't know why I do it. I wish I could stop. It's probably because it's something you developed to help you function through your life in a way so you could avoid that like emotion deep down in there that like you just didn't have mm-hmm. the support or skill to process when you were younger. Yeah. And so going back to that significant other that was left in the rain, she could notice that she's angry, do a, what I like to call a stomp walk or like really just scream and yell it out, hit something, take the anger out in a healthy, positive, like not even positive, I hate positive and negative these days, but in a healthy full cyclical way of releasing it. And then her head is clear enough for her to say, all right, maybe I'll sit under the overhang and get my phone and try and call somebody. Maybe I'll and come up with a plan. But what she's, what we're led into doing is exactly what you were saying. He doesn't think about me. Now I'm going to stay out here so that he feels like shit about this. And now X, Y, Z is going to happen. And you know what? fine. I'm not doing the dishes for a week. I'm And like we stew in the emotion and we hold it so present and we hold on to it and maintain our justification with it. And until it reaches a point where it activates some trauma response within us, well, which that- then is, oh, when my mom used to do that, like I learned through my childhood, I'm going to sit here. Just to prove a point, I'm going to sit out in the rain all day so that he'll feel guilty when he gets back. And I won't even mm-hmm. say anything. I'll just make him feel passive aggressively guilty. Yeah. Or I'm going to I'm going to storm out and I'm not going to come back till tomorrow. I'm not going to communicate till he gets back and he yeah. figures it all out. And this is also a sort of silly example because like how many like adult people, men <laughs> or women, are being like left out in the rain? It's a great example just to like, pair with the dog. I but mean. like but the point is it really is like Something stressful happens and our immediate response because of the life that we've lived through the systems that we have. So many of us is to jump into judging that experience and then avoiding it and then triggered into these like patterned behaviors that eventually trigger these like trauma responses and it all sucks. None of it feels good for us. And like we then end up looking back on it like, why did I do that thing? And really... There's another way, which is to reclaim our power, which is what you're talking about and what sounds like your programmings are really offering, which is a structured way to transform how we perceive confidence, what we know about it, and how we actually cultivate it within ourselves. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's really just going back to the beginning of reestablishing that trust in yourself redefining how you want to interact with and relate to confidence and showing up in the world in a way that allows you to tap into that, have your own back the entire time and know that you are in control of your reality. That doesn't, that external stuff, that doesn't inform how you feel. You inform how you feel and you get to decide whether or not it's going to ruin your day. And you get to decide whether or not you're going to recycle that shit or you're going to release it. And you start to have control over those processes rather than external shit having control over you. Amen. So 
We've been talking through all kinds of things, Mm -hmm. confidence and the ways that our societal systems undermine our ability to really develop, strengthen and enhance our confidence throughout our lives and the difference that comes when we embrace and enhance how we build confidence within ourselves as we navigate Mm -hmm. through our life. We also started this conversation with talking about you and the vision that you now have for stepping into this new phase of your life. So I wonder if we could get super practical and if you could walk us through, you've got this vision of what you want your business to become, of which direction you want your life to go. And you've got some of this like resistance that is between you and that vision and you taking action to start massively bringing to life that vision. If we were to like implement the principles of your programming, can you and I just talk through, if you were to be coaching yourself through where you're at right now, like what comes up, where are you and what would be the steps that come next as far as what you would suggest for yourself to dive into? Yeah, it's a, such a good question because I actually have been coaching myself through this, and I've created I've created some morning rituals and journaling practices that have been very supportive for me throughout this. And so, be, essentially, I'm doing a lot of inner child work with myself. I'm visiting with that inner child. I'm a, I'm giving her space. Anything that comes up is welcome, and I start with that. I start with tapping into my core essence and allowing, literally, just saying, "Hey." What's present? The other day, I sat down, did a little meditation, and I had visions of a boxer come up. And it was just like someone was just in a ring ready to fight. And I was like, all right, we got some anger. We got some anger. Something's going on. And I can tell. And my little girl came up. I think it was my six-year-old self. And she came up and she was having a tough time because of some stories that were circulating. And I just let her play it out gave her what she needed, some love, compassion. And then in the car- A lot of ways, that's how I get comfort is like mm. doing things that are somewhat radical. And so for me, actually, sometimes my challenge is to be able to notice that patterning and when I'm following it, just for the sake of the default patterning and to be able to allow myself to not fall into that pattern. Because whether it's, oh, I'm doing things so that I fit in or I'm just doing things so I can make sure that I don't fit in. Either way, Mm -hmm. they're just opposite sides of the same coin. And so Mm -hmm. for me, it's just about like, how can I notice when I'm being pulled to push my fear threshold just because I don't want the fear to have power over me? Mm -hmm. Even my own fear, I fight like it's a kindergarten teacher that I don't want to have control over me. (laughs) So it's for me, I just constantly have to check in with myself and I can play that game and there's Mm -hmm. valuable stuff that comes out of it for Mm -hmm. me. But also, can I allow myself to settle into stillness and to just like actually go with the flow of a meeting that somebody else is running? And like, can I like follow the plan that somebody else has shaped and created? Can I actually allow myself to follow the rules to fit in? And can I allow myself to get into these games of challenging the status quo? I love hearing this so much because there there really are, like we've talked about this so much, but there really are so many similarities around how we grew up. And because you're one of three boys, right? Yeah, I'm the middle. I'm the middle of three girls. Yes. That's yes. Middle child, black sheeps. 
Exactly. And, but it's so funny because what I'm hearing is, and here's where the, and I'm oversimplifying it like massively, but we, neither one of us had a sense of belonging to where we were. And whereas my response to that was, fuck me, your response to that was, fuck you. Exactly. (laughs) And I'm totally oversimplifying, but it's so funny because it's totally true. Yeah, you're like, okay, fuck you. I don't belong. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go figure out where I belong and I'm gonna go do whatever I wanna do because I don't belong. And mine is, okay, fuck me. I'm not gonna do anything that I want to do because I need to belong. And what's interesting is we both had to learn how that pattern was actually perpetuating our loneliness. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent. Oh, hundred thousand. Either direction that you take from there, you're creating distance from true belonging, because that true belonging is dictated by the depth of our ability to connect with ourselves, which then defines the depth of our ability to connect with others. It's it's so funny. You can go opposite directions. Oh shit! I don't want to do anything to upset you, so I'm gonna play super small. But then I'm never gonna feel authentic. Or I'm going to stay so committed to making sure I'm only doing things that feel authentic to me. I will never do anything where you have any power over me. And either way, oh, it's just this like hyper codependence or hyper independence, neither of them being healthy interdependence. Yes. And sorry, I'm looking up because. It, Brene Brown, she says something about belonging. And it's oh, all that, about. That might a direct Brene quote. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be. I tend to like, I've consumed so much Brene. It's just like in yeah. my operating system. I, I can't actually separate. So I feel like sometimes I should just walk around like parenthetically citing Brene yeah. Brown just three times yeah. a day just to cover myself. Yes, but it, I think it's something along the lines of true belonging is being able to stand out in a crowd, but we interpret belonging as fitting in. Yeah. And fitting in is the loneliest thing in the world. Yeah. In the Empowered Wellbeing Framework, which is mm-hmm. what my book is about, I define belonging as connecting through trust so deeply that I believe myself to be worthy of authenticity and connection with others at the same time. Is that not my framework, man? You and I are two sides of the same coin. But that's so beautiful because it's the deepest rooted trust in yourself that allows for the connection to be so pure. And I don't mean pure in like the puritanical sense or in the, but to be so pure in terms of no hidden agendas, no motives, just true connection. Not, I'm trying to connect with you to get X, Y, Z out of it. or And that getting out of it could be the belonging. I'm not even trying to connect with you to belong because I already know that I belong. Yeah, I'm, I'm just expressing me and I'm expressing me in a true way. And then I'm filtering it only by giving it direction, not by giving it diminishment. I'm directing it in a kind and respectful way that is open to connection with you. <laughs> I'm rather than I am looking for the optimal way 
to please you, even if that requires suppressing myself. <laughs> the thing that makes it true connection is both sides subscribing <laughs> and both sides subscribing to that. And having both of you stand out in a crowd while coming together, that's belonging because you have your own sense of who you are and it doesn't compromise. And by you not compromising that, you're not compromising anyone else. I have this really fresh on my mind because I just edited and solidified this chapter, but I break belonging down into three core pivots. That every person has to do. And uh, the acronym is ROW, as in what we're trying to do is ROW with the flow of life rather than shut down aspects of ourselves so that we then can't flow with the flow of life. And so mm-hmm. ROW, one is reality. Tell the truth or at least don't lie. We have to commit to being authentic. And so being okay, impeccable with our words. To be impeccable with your word. Like I commit to exploring and expressing my truth because we are in we are imperfect beings and so even with that commitment we're going to fuck up we're going to get caught in illusion and delusion and so it is only with a absolutely radical commitment to that that we stand mm-hmm. any shot at discovering any truth and expressing truth and by opening ourselves up not walking around with the defense of lying now it's mm-hmm. possible but we can get caught and stuck in these like cycles where other people have power over us if we're committed to our truth, but we don't orient our identity in the right place. So the second pivot is about orientation, that my identity is not defined by my ego, which is just my constructed mm-hmm. self that my unconscious mind creates in relation to my reality. And so my unconscious mind is there just interpreting my experience with my outer world and my relationships, and it creates this constructed identity. That's great. It's super helpful for me so I can have a sense of how I'm separate from everything. But that's not who I am. It's part of who I am. Who I am is actually much deeper. It's oriented into the effervescent continuity of consciousness itself, right? So that's who I am. I am one representation that is in connection with consciousness itself. And it just so happens that my representation has a really close connection with this ego that's within it and happens to be stored within this body. And that's who I am. And when we orient our identity there, nobody can fuck with me. Like (laughs) Mm. I'm connected to the multiverse motherfucker. Mm. That's what myself is. So, like, my job is to figure out how do I strengthen and enhance my confidence infinitely? Because it's an Mm -hmm. infinite path. It's about how do I align what I'm experiencing, Mm -hmm. bringing it to the light of my awareness, and then asking myself how it connects with the life around me. And so that's how I create this alignment with my identity And consciousness and confidence is this like thing that is strengthening the whole thing. And so that's orientation. And so now I'm being real. I've oriented my identity in the right place. And then there's this awesome piece that 
a lot of people are good at, but they just don't have their identity oriented in the right place. And a lot of people haven't developed the skills for. And it's what I call webbing, which is Ooh. the ability to create connections with other people, which would be like Brene Brown's braving, like the ability to show up with people in a way that creates trust and invites and allows them to be real back with you. Invites and allows mm. them and encourages them to orient their identity in a place that's deeper than just their ego. And so those three pivots are the key ways that I see that we create belonging. I love that. that I fun? love the idea of webbing. I really do. And something that was coming through for me with orient, orienting, orienti, orienting. Yeah. yeah. Is how... I've started to become aware of how frequently I use the phrase I am. And here's why. Because everything is political these days when you subscribe to a political party. So let's just say, throw out a party. (laughs) Republican. Democrat. Libertarian. Republican. Libertarian. We'll go with libertarian. (laughs) I am a libertarian. That lights up the part in your brain that is attached to identity. So now when you are saying, I am a libertarian over and over again in your conversations, you're lighting up that part in your brain. So now when you have more conversations, and if you have any with people who are not libertarian, your identity part gets lit up in your brain and it becomes an attack when there's a difference of what used to be opinion because now it's identity. And so that orientation, when you orient with things that are not actually your true essence, it truly does trigger things to become personal, to become egoic. And when things get egoic, and so when things get egoic... When things get egoic, we get rigid and our life begins to shrink and gets limited and it doesn't fucking feel good. And there's no connection. You prevent connection. Our ego's nature is to empower us with separateness. Its very nature is separateness. Its job is to help us understand how we are separate so that we can navigate as a separate and distinct being through our life, which is great as long as we know we actually aren't. That like we're a distinct being, but we're not actually separate. And what ends up happening when I orient my identity and my ego is there's this pattern that's wired into all of our psychology, which is helpful if it's if our identity is oriented in the right place, but it's harmful if our identity is not because we're all driven for coherence. So if my identity is oriented in that I am one representation of eternal consciousness that is connected to the consciousness around me. And my particular representation is this guy and this body, then I am looking for things that can resonate with my experiences so that I can highlight and deepen my connection with that multiverse that I'm connected to. Great. That's what that belief empowers me to do. Everything that I experience is an opportunity for me to deepen my belonging. Everything. Just by Mm -hmm. orienting my identity in the right place, I don't even actually have to do that work. If my identity is oriented in that place and I can just lean into some curiosity and openness My mind does that part for me because its job is to create coherence. 
But if my identity is oriented in the ego, then what I'm doing is my mind is looking for evidence for how I'm separate. And so the moment you say I am a libertarian, if I don't identify with being a libertarian, what my mind very quickly hears in that moment is I don't belong with you. Yeah. And it also hears you're telling me I'm wrong. And now I need to get defensive. Yeah. Yeah. You're telling me. So it's the ego is like this. It's like this power struggle within because while if I, let's just go with the, let's say you're an apple and I'm a banana. If I go, and we go with that. I love, hey, I, I, I love where this is going. Now we are fruits. <laughs> We've always been take, fruity. Take us there. Take us there. <laughs> but it's, it's this inner power struggle where the ego, it wants to tell us we're separate so that it can protect us. Yeah. But the minute that someone tells us we are separate, the minute someone separates us, it's a fight. Yeah. And it's like a fight to belong. And so it, it's just this inner struggle. And once again, it's the stories. And so when you orient yourself, you've got to be aware of the stories you're telling yourself about who you are. Yeah. And that's where the I am comes in too. So it's everything is just beautifully fitting together today, Matt. But really the being able to orient yourself, I love this so much because it truly is getting to the root of who you are and who you are is it's not the successes you achieve. It's not put a little pin in this because it's not the things that you do in terms of the doing things to get, but it is who you are. And it is what you do in that essence. And it's really, I'm thinking of, and I love the row terminology because I'm really thinking of an anchor. And when you drop an anchor, it goes all the way to the bottom. It goes through the seaweed. It goes through the muck. It goes through everything. It goes right to the bottom. And that's like exact. And that's where you rotate around. Maybe you'll knock into a buoy. Maybe you'll whatever. I'm just, I'm really loving that because it's all about the true essence. Preston Smile says the isness. It's who you just is, <laughs> who you are. And who I am is not my job, even though sometimes I get into that mindset and think it is not the type of clothing that I wear. That's an expression of me. That's a, an avenue that I choose to show up. But who I truly am is an iteration of who everybody else is and at the core it's love. Hell yeah. One of my, one of my favorite interventions I was doing when I was working a lot as a therapist with clients is I had this worksheet that had four different columns and it was just a bunch of lines that started. I am blank. And I would just give it to people and I would ask them to take three minutes and fill it up as much as they possibly could. And those were the only instructions I would give. And then they would write, right? I am Brian. I am a basketball player. I am a son. I am a middle child. I am an A student. I am. And they just fill it all the way up. And then I'd say, okay, now show me which one of those is completely and wholly you. And then that would be where we would dive into our conversation of like, how can you be 
any one of those if none of them can actually be entirely who you are. And it's, it's not to say that no one should use that phrase. If you want to say, I am something, great, be that thing. But the problem is we fall into these patterns of thinking of ourselves as these shallow surface level roles that we play and these things that we like, because mm-hmm. they're, they're, they make sense within the structure and like ocean of culture that we're all swimming around in. Yeah. And then it becomes association rather than, or it becomes more than association. It becomes inherent rather than just association, I think I should say. But there's no separation at that point. And I think you're absolutely right. Yes, of course, you can use I am because it's part of how we express. And also, start to notice. What are you tying yourself to? Can you say it in a different way? Can you separate yourself from those things? Can you recognize where you are allowing other things to determine who you are and what your worth is? Because that's what you're doing. You almost are like splintering little pieces of yourself into these different things. And what happens, we start to say that we're not whole without certain things. But there's actually, there's another connection here, which is... Yeah. This is actually the answer to your question about my manifestation practice. Oh, yeah, I was like, about to circle back to it. No, I know. We're actually, I think we're here, which is, I, there were times in my life where I had altars, where I would have candles and there would be specific mm-hmm. things that like I would meditate with and I would have what might come up if you Google what is a manifestation practice. I like had mm-hmm. a very traditional practice like that. The past couple of years, I haven't necessarily what I've come to realize is my pathway to recovery from addiction was that I started from a place where I was constantly lying throughout my entire life because I was so disconnected from my body that mm-hmm. I didn't actually know the difference between what truth and lie felt like. It all felt the same to me. So I figured I might as well just say whatever's going to get me the most coolness points. There's this great line. I don't know who it's, I think it's like Mark Twain, which is don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. And I like read that shit when I was 19 and I was like, this motherfucker gets it. That's exactly, that's my guy. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, yeah, exactly. No one else gets it. But the problem- Don't let the truth get in the way of life. Right, and then it was like, once I really- I was like suicidal, anxious, and depressed. The question of what is true suddenly had much deeper implications of, yo, I actually cannot feel like I can navigate through life without knowing what is true. What the hell do I anchor my sense of self into? I was filled with so much panic. And the only thing that helped was feeling like I'd find something. And what I started to discover was through relationship with a quality therapist or a friend or in my meditation practice with myself, that when I identified and expressed truth in the presence of care, shame eroded and I created connection and confidence, which then gave me some stability within reality 
And so I started to see the real payoff that comes with truth, which is I actually get to cultivate this sense of belonging that then unlocks my sense of security. That's what belonging is. I get to belong somewhere. And so then I can actually let go of being in like defense attack mode, which physically I was. I just had cortisol flowing through me at all times. I was addicted to opiates. Like my oxytocin process was not working I was while that was repairing. And so then after that, I had such a deep commitment to truth. I was like, I was always a bullshitter. Now I'm not going to say something unless it's true. So that's the same when I'm writing, when I'm speaking. I am only going to say what's fucking true. And so I'm so intentional with my language. I think what ends up happening is everything becomes a manifestation practice because I'm so committed to uncovering my own deep truth. And if there's something that I identify that is like this big, powerful thing pulling at me, I have to ask, what is that? What is? What do I want there? And if I just get super curious, there's a very clear hope that then as I identify and name it is like bringing the light, like it's bringing a wanting, a yearning to the light of awareness, which is just a man, it's a manifestation practice. And then I'm Mm -hmm. holding that and I'm keeping it in my awareness and I'm asking myself what action should come from this. And I'm allowing that to be anchored into how I see my reality. And so I don't, right now, I don't really have a traditional like vision board manifestation practice. But what I would say is, I think what happens is similar to how you and I were talking about, like, there is no separation between our relationship with our inner world and our outer world, that all this stuff, all these things that we're talking about, whether it's a self-compassion practice, a mindfulness practice, a manifestation practice, all this is really just about committing to exploring truth and expressing yourself truly in reality. Go through your life deeply committed to cultivating your confidence. And what ends up happening is your life is a manifestation practice. Fucking said. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I also really love about the way you were just explaining that is, first of all, you were talking about orienting yourself and living in a reality through that orientation. And, you know, that reality is your truth. And then that creates webbing. So I just wanted to point that out, that you're living (laughs) your manifestation practice. And also, I think what was really important about what you said is being with yourself or trusted others, creating safety around truth, and from there, deciding on action. And isn't that a more macro version of mindfulness? Creating safety and stillness so that you can find the pause between that determines response or reaction. Hell yeah. And that just truly is life. And so it's like getting clear and it's getting honest and really living in truth and living in trust, which is confidence. And it's not silly, flighty, la land stuff. We're talking about recovering from a place of deep addiction and turmoil and suicidality. And that process 
is the exact same process that you see any world changer following, any Mm -hmm. radical high-performing leader following. And so it can, when you start to talk about some of this stuff, because so many ideas have been convoluted, be it confidence or mindfulness or intuition, it can be easy to dismiss it with the cynicism roll of the eyes or to just decide, oh, sure, that's like the new agey, spiritual, whatever stuff. But really, this is the most practical stuff, that this is the Mm -hmm. most practical stuff when it comes to actually living a life that isn't going to lead you to depression, anxiety, suicidality, harming other people. And a lot of that is, and yeah, a lot of that is the self-abandonment piece. And not staying with yourself and having your own back through the through the hard times and not giving yourself the regulation that you need and not giving your not learning, getting to the truth and the heart of the matter of who you are and allowing that to be your anchor and let you lead with that. Hundred percent. I think it's I love that you said life is a manifestation practice. And one thing I've been playing around with is are you giving the world mixed signals? Are you giving the universe, God, whoever's up, whoever it is that you believe in, are you giving them mixed signals? Because the things that you tell yourself versus the things you tell the universe, are they in alignment? Because the it becomes a radical accountability that we have to accept if we actually choose to believe in manifestation. It, you can't have it both ways. You can't choose to believe in it for 10 minutes in the morning while you imagine the future that you hope to cultivate. And then Mm -hmm. immediately after that practice, you lay in bed full of shame and anxiety about the things that you did the night before. It's what you're communicating to the universe with that energy of the two hours that you're laying in bed filled with your shame and judgment is that you need space to be separate so that you can wallow in your shame and that our energy speaks much louder than the words that we utter. And so those 10 minutes of uttering those words, no matter how pure that practice was, you're spending so much more time and other energy. So the question is like, what happens when we actually embrace like the real truth of what we're telling ourselves we believe is we then yeah. have to be accountable to those beliefs, meaning, oh, okay, if I believe that the way I relate with my inner world communicates something to the world around me then that can't just be in little moments. That has to be the entirety of how I go through my day. So I have to be relating with myself, not just so that my life can be better, but also so that I can be communicating with the universe the way that I would hope to. Oh my God, yes. And you know what's so funny is 100%. And so essentially, how do I be what it is that I want to manifest? Yeah. And what's so funny, and I don't think people actually get, is the actual definition of manifestation is something that is in existence. It's not something you're calling in. It's not something that could be. It's not something that you got to work towards. It's something that is in existence. So when we talk about illness and the manifestation of symptoms, it's the symptoms that are present. And so we use this word about things in the future. I'm manifesting this. I Or things in the past. I manifested that. No, you fucking didn't. Something is manifest. 
So you are manifest. So what is it that you are? Or what is it that you're telling yourself you are? That is manifest. Interesting. I'm now, I'm looking at the etymology of manifest. Uh-huh. Sure. I love that shit. I fucking live for this shit. So I and, know. it goes back to Latin, of course. Everything in Latin, goes back to Latin. Manus, M-N-U-S, is hand. And so manifest is caught in the hand. Like you have something there in your hand, like you're already holding it. Something manifests itself like you hold your hand out and you're showing it to somebody. Caught in the hand is the literal translation. Isn't that so manifest? The actual definition as an adjective is clear or obvious to the eye or mind. And to display or show by one's action or one's acts or appearance, to demonstrate. So it's so funny how we use it as something that we are calling in or something in the future or whatever. The reality is what you are is manifest yes and if there's a wanting or a hope that i have about some clear vision or thing or relationship or experience that i want in the future the invitation that i often encourage for clients and that at least i follow for myself Mm -hmm. is where is that coming from not Mm -hmm. what is that thing leading me to if i want to imagine that and hold that and see it great But then there's still another question. Like, let me see it as clearly as possible. Amazing. And where is that coming from? What part within me can I then bring into deeper alignment with myself so I can Mm. connect with that thing so that then I am expressing more of that energy that is at the core of whatever is doing the wanting of the future. And so it's Mm. not about holding the future. It's about holding the thing in the present that wants that future. Oh, what is so incredible about what you just said, though, Matt, is the come from can change what's manifest. So if I want this job because I think I will feel fulfilled or I think I will feel appreciated or validated or recognized, that's the come from. And so once I recognize what that come from is, if I provide that to myself, whatever is manifest could be something more or better or different. And it's really all about knowing. And that's where the mixed signals comes in. Because, okay, let's take, you go on the apps, you're, you, you go on the apps, you're like chatting it up with all these potential partners. And if I actually had a conversation with one of my girlfriends the other night. Because she was like, maybe I'll just let him know that she's saying she's feeling not interested. She's like, maybe I'll just let him know that that I'm no longer looking for, I'm really not ready for a relationship. And I was like, are you ready for a relationship? She was like, yeah. I was like, so then why aren't you just telling him you're not interested? And, and I fall into the same trap. So I'm just using this as a very relevant recent example. And it's okay. So what is it that you are manifest right now? And, and so your fear of saying, I'm not interested, you know, whether it's to prevent their feelings from being hurt or to prevent whatever. I want them to like communicate rejection or judgment of me that like might feel uncomfortable, or I don't want to feel like I'm responsible for hurting their feelings and them being upset with themselves. Or it's what we might call conflict, like any sort of discomfort 
coming up within that relationship. But like, ultimately, there's no way to end a relationship without at least some amount of conflict, at least being possible. A hundred percent. And exactly. And so we were just, we were laughing about it too. Cause I was like, so you're ending this. So I said to her, I was like, okay, so you can either say, you know what? I don't see this progressing romantically and being very clear about that. Or you can leave the door open for him to come back and be like, Hey, are you ready now? And you're still not interested. So you're not, you're even energetically, you're opening doors that need to be closed and you're closing off other doors that need to be open. So it's who are you? That is what's manifest. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a real gift that comes with deepening that perspective, which is it can be so hard for us to do things just for ourselves. Tell me about it. My self-accountability versus other accountability. And like when we tell someone else we're going to do something versus when we promise ourselves we're going to do something. But Mm -hmm. what then starts to happen, if we really buy into this perspective, like the universe is always watching. The universe is always listening, not to punish us, but to give us Mm -hmm. what it thinks we're telling it we want and what we are showing up and communicating that we need. And so if we can buy into that, then suddenly the commitment I make to myself, me upholding that or like me expressing my truth or not, mm. suddenly has so much more weight than just, I know I'll feel guilty and I'll feel like I betrayed myself a little bit. And like, I might feel a little anxious about it afterwards, but I'd rather do that than make them uncomfortable. <laughs> and it's, yeah, but then what if you can buy into the idea that it's not just that you're making yourself uncomfortable and anxious they're actually communicating something to the universe that you don't want to be communicating to it. It's yeah. like, oh, so you're choosing mm-hmm. your relationship with that person, like not making them displeased with you. And instead, you're upsetting the universe. Whoa. I don't, know, I don't know if that's the right way you want to make that decision. <laughs> There's like some meme or whatever about someone not using sunscreen and the guys, you think you're tougher than the sun, bro? The sun? Yeah, yeah, I've seen that like the sun. Okay. <laughs> you think you can get around the universe by lying? Okay. <laughs> and you know, I will say, as you were saying, that there's the universe and it's always listening. And it also, it is part of you. You are the universe. You are your universe. And so it's like you're shaping everything around you with the things that you do. And I'm seeing this more and more in myself and I'm being more, I'm starting to get more and more impeccable with my word and get more and more aware of, do I want someone stringing me along? Is that what I want to call in for myself? Is that what I want? Is that what I desire and deserve? And that is what I will call in if that is what I do. And it's really just being that which you desire. And trusting that you're worthy of being that way. I'm worthy of speaking my mind. I'm worthy of saying I'm not interested and being discerning around my partners. And I'm worthy of that. And everybody is. It's not even like worthy over. And so anyway... 
Amen. Well, this is so fun. All right, so Kate, if for anybody that has been listening and is holy shit, this has been fun and wild and weird, and I hope that some of you are. And hello, thanks for riding along with us. If they're interested yeah. in learning more about you and your work, they can find you. Instagram is probably the best way. I am very hands-on. I will reach out and respond if anybody messages. And it's got all of my all of my information linked. Amazing. Great to see you as always. This was so much fun. I'm now going to stop this recording. Goodbye to the world. (laughs)